0: In this edition of the podcast, more exhibitions move online. Giselle Stanborough's Synopticon at Carriage Works is reimagined on the internet. Kathy Sutherland's enormous seven-volume catalogue of Brett Whiteley's work hits the shelves, and Ballarat's photo biennale finds inspiration in our COVID nineteen lockdown. I'm Tim Stackpool, and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for joining us once again. Always really appreciate you downloading the podcast as we continue to experience the arts as best we can without getting out and about as much as we'd like. Hopefully still keeping some form of routine, although I do have to admit becoming so immersed in so much art and exhibitions now being redeployed online, by the time I look up at sometimes two o'clock in the morning, that's certainly a habit I'll have to break. But anyway, this edition is once again being produced remotely, so disappointing, I know, There's still no podcast prize wheel, as it's self-isolating itself back at the studio, but it will return as soon as we can return. The podcast prize wheel still nonetheless is sponsored by Pixel Perfect Pro Lab, who remain operating at this time for all your print reproduction and photographic needs, and to support those who listen to this podcast, they continue to offer a 20% reduction in the cost of your first print order with Pixel Perfect Pro Lab. Look them up at pixelperfect.com.au. And their support of this podcast goes towards creating the transcripts of our interviews as requested by art lovers who are hearing impaired. And of course, Pixel Perfect Pro Lab's continuing support even during these challenging times is very much appreciated. So let's move ahead and get underway. First catching up with Giselle Stanborough, whose work Synopticon is installed at Carriage Works, but is now transitioning to an online experience. Synopticon itself contemporizes the theory of the panopticon, which is a model of surveillance where the few watch and control the many. In the physical exhibition, Giselle uses searchlights and sculptural forms, colossal wall diagrams and mirrored digital surfaces to reflect the performative experience of social media platforms. As the subject and the object of her own scrutiny, Giselle pretty much is the ghost in her own machine. She haunts its house of mirrors, if you like, trapped as a digital apparition at the bottom of the well. Giselle joins us now on the podcast via Skype. She also spends time as a sessional teacher at university and as a museum artist educator. So Giselle, before we chat about your installation at CarriageWorks, you're doing okay at the moment, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, as well as can be expected in a global pandemic and edging into, you know, a depression. (laughs) So yeah, look, I'm actually I'm actually totally fine. I'm I really enjoy making art. And um, even though I don't have my studio or, you know, really anything, Mm. (laughs) it's just something that I have been able to do. And, um, you know, of course, I miss my day jobs, too. I miss that social interaction and um, the kind of job satisfaction that I get, like teaching at uni or I teach Mm. at another art institution. Um, And you really do feel like you have a sort of, you know, beneficent kind of role translating um, you know making uh, contemporary art which can be quite um, abstruse into something that is legible and relevant and that's yeah. really like I do miss my my day jobs but yeah look I think under the circumstances I'm dealing really well I just I just really enjoy making art and even though it's probably not very good and is incredibly difficult from my tiny little studio. You know, it could be so much worse.
0: And just digressing a little bit in terms of mm-hmm. the teaching you've just mentioned, we had a conversation in the last podcast with Monash University about how they adapted their teaching to online. Have you had the opportunity to do any of that?
1: Yes, yes, we we have, and it really that was a bit of a rough landing for me. It's just you know the online space is so different, and I guess this is going to be relevant to what we discuss later on. Um, you know, have made work for online environments. I have mm. used the digital interface, you know, specifically consciously, intentionally as the material. Mm. Um, but I just think that teaching online, and I think everybody knows this, you know, it's it's a very, very, very poor substitute. If you're teaching art, especially
0: the folks at Monash actually said that they in the faculty of arts anyway said they have a new respect for the digital domains in Mm. the last four weeks or so, purely because of of what they've had to do and how they've had to adapt their teaching.
1: Mm, Yeah, and I think because it has just been so sudden, the ways that your perception of time changes through COVID. I'm Mm. like, was this a month ago? Was this Mm. two months ago? Mm. What day of the week is it today? Mm. (laughs) I'm sure with you, you know, um, working till two in the morning Mm. Mm. or at two in the morning, you would also be feeling the strange disconnect with our usual rhythms of life.
0: Yes, yes. It's, it's all very much like that. Now, let's turn to your work at Works, And like all art, that was designed to create an emotional response while people were in the physical space. But how well do you think it's achieving that now that it's moved online?
1: I think um it's also still in the process of moving online in mm. light of sort of what's happened mm. i have uh or i'm in the process of making a specific digital work yeah because as you mentioned it's a physical space it was never designed to be seen online the content draws heavily from themes of Cybersecurity and yeah. surveillance capitalism, and is very much concerned with the internet. Mm. Um, but part of its sort of logic was to take that out of the internet and and use you know space and light and a kind of materiality that also the sort of oral sound capacities of the massive space at Carriage Works mm. to you know create that kind of sensory effective encounter with the work. Um, so of course online it is very different and it becomes a different thing and you know there are also kinds of structural and temporal limitations yeah. space and materials like the digital is a material websites are a material they have certain capacities and architectures um, and like all materials they have a cost to, to say make a purpose-built website is much more expensive than using a pre-existing architecture yeah. you know all of these things kind of need to be considered um, so in a way I think so important that it is out there because the whole idea you know was to <laughs> kind of prompt a consideration of the politics and mm. you know, the kinds of subjectivities that are developing under communication capitalism or surveillance capitalism, whatever you want to call it, the world we're in today, which is only revved up after COVID, you know, yeah. that the world itself has been taken away and now we now it's like we just have the screen. Yeah. Um, so it's super important that I put those ideas out there because I believe in their in their validity. But in terms of the emotional response and, and the physical space, it is a different. It's a, it's a different work, and that's also why I'm, you know, choosing to to respond to this and to make a new one. Yeah. Um. To factor those things in, and this is something that has really changed the world. This is a this is a historic event, and it's the reception of the work now. You know, even if we were to open the doors Mm. is different. The world is, you know, is always changing. And so artworks are, you know, always changing. Even with historical artworks, you don't see, you know, Alaska's the way that it could be seen, you know, in under-enlightenment style thinking. We can only see it now. So I'm also interested in those things. And hopefully one day, touch wood, you never know, (laughs) I mean, most of the show is up. Maybe the doors will open and we'll we'll be able to see it again. That would be my primary hope, Yeah. to see it in the gallery.
0: In terms of the piece, you spent a year developing it. Now you're transitioning it to online. There's a different pressure there for you, isn't there? Because all of a sudden you've got to take what you spent a year putting together. You've You've now got to compress your preparation time and also make it relevant online, I mean, there's a different kind of pressure on you as an artist to deliver now.
1: Yes, there is, but, you know, I've always been um, a woeful professional artist where, you know, I do art because I enjoy it. I really, Mm. I'm, you know, incredibly sceptical of, you know, these sorts of romantic ideas that align Um, you know, art with sort of a kind of pathological compulsion that it's like, oh, you know, you just have to make art. But I, you know, I'm choosing, it's like I'm choosing to do this and maybe it won't be very good. Um, But it certainly has utility for me in thinking through and working through um, what we're going through now. Um, and it will be whatever it will be. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, so your perspective is very pragmatic in that sense. But I think there's a level of irony here in the fact that you created a work of art which is all Mm -hmm. about, as you say, surveillance capitalism. Mm -hmm. And now we find ourselves, upon the launch of your work, very much under surveillance, very much being controlled in terms of our movements and being monitored through our phones, through apps and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you really did predict the future in a way, didn't you, with your work?
1: Well, it's interesting that you frame it like that because, you know, I kind of just predicted the present. (laughs) Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, well, oh, no, I mean, like, sure, but, um, you know, in the terms of, I guess, our cognizance of surveillance and its legibility, I find this really interesting because um, it does sort of speak to the relationship between, you know, mass global neoliberal corporations and the state Mm. and we do feel much more ambivalent about giving our data over to the state than we do to you know say Facebook, Instagram, whatever even though I think you know with the Mueller investigation that we saw last year um, the correlations between you know what we see as sort of consumer technologies uh, and its impact on 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 the state and you know the integrity of the democratic process which was located in America but it, it's happening all over the world mm. you know it, it's not such a, a clear a clear divide but I think if what it takes is a sort of um, state surveillance to draw our attention um, to the ways that all of our movements and, you know, things that we don't even think of as bio data, like our voice, um, you know, our fingerprints um, are constantly circulating by institutions of power, sometimes mm. states, sometimes private. And often there is a lot of overlap.
0: Is all your art politically motivated in that sense? Are you driven by that?
1: I don't see our uh, politics and subjectivity as neatly divisible. Uh-huh. I don't really identify as a political artist. You know, I just sort of was born at this time, uh-huh. cast into the world as we all are, and these seem to be the things that I'm confronted with and draw my attention and seem to be uh, worthy of consideration. But it probably comes... From my immediate experience and sort of experience of subjectivity and self-reflection about that, what I ought to be and the potentialities of what I can choose to be, that obviously exists within a historical context. and, And this is the one that has become so everyday that it's almost invisible, but it never loses its strangeness to me. Yeah. So that's yeah. why I think I was drawn to that path. You know, it's just so weird. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. No, I think art, if we speak about it, in a general sense, is always a reflection of society at the time through the eyes mm-hmm. of the artist and how they how they're motivated in that sense. But it seems to be that your motivation does come from the way we either accept how we're shaped by our current politics or authoritarianism, if I can put it that way, rather than being inspired by the environment in which you're in, by the, the flowers, by the parklands, by the mountains, by the sea?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that this is, you know, about really the process of signification, which brings these sorts of two worlds together that um, even how we experience the sensate environment, the mountains, the sea, can't be divisible from their kind of linguistic or identification as sign, that mm. there is no sort of like a oh, neutral uh, experience of the ocean. So, I'm, you know, I definitely consider the senses and the body very much, you know, mm. how could we not even now – that I just mentioned oh now we're all on screens we're all living online But yeah. the screen always has a haptic you know you touch it it vibrates you have it in your pocket wearables are always part of the body mm. you know <laughs> working at home it's like oh my back hurts um, <laughs> yes yeah, yeah, so i sitting
0: she- watching the screen too long yes
1: <laughs> yeah my chair is really <laughs> uncomfortable I'm not set up to work from home I just don't think that it's that there is these sorts of Mind, body, or like self politics kinds of kinds of divides, um, and I guess uh, maybe I I frame it politically as well because I think that's you know something that's pretty in vogue mm. um, at the moment, and it's nice to sort of give art a sort of utility, but you know in my heart of hearts, I, I do believe that it might be maybe there is a you know, a touch of politics or I don't want to say activism, but, you know, yeah. a sense of, of an awareness of a power structure there. Yeah. But that is because it is inscribed in me, you know, when you were just mentioning um, this uh, choice about seeing the flowers or the kind of structures that we're in. It's like well, where does this self that is seeing the flowers come from?
0: Coming back to that, given all the work that you put in to Synopticonic Carriage Works, then lockdown came around, considering how much of a deep thinker you are, how much did your heart sink when you got that news and thought about the implications of what that meant?
1: Well, look, it was awful. I mean, there's yeah, I think, you know, the answer to that is sort of embedded in the question. Mm. Like it sucks, but um, <laughs> yes. on the other hand, when I realized that that was going to happen, I was, of course, devastated for the show. Yeah. I, and, and still am, but I'm, you know, more devastated about <laughs> the reasons why it is cancelled. Number one, I do see my art as sort of like a, you know, like a kind of mapping, but it's not the territory itself. Like the territory is life. And yeah. that will always be more important. Um, and in many ways, you know, I'm quite lucky. Like, I mean, I don't. My income is by no means stable. I'm mm. really not wealthy. Um, but there are people that will be extremely disadvantaged by this, and I will be in the long term for sure. Everybody in the arts will be. Mm. Um, but in the short term there are people that this is going to hit really hard. yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm just lucky that I'm not one of them. I have a safe place to um, self-isolate and I don't know, maybe it sounds naff, but <laughs> things could be so much worse. So, yes, yes, my heart sunk, but it's, you know, it's bobbing around in the middle. <laughs>
0: yeah, so you keep a certain level of perspective in terms of the fact, well, it's pretty tough. The situation that we're all in, but your particular situation is not as tough as it could be when compared with other people. I mean, basically, that's it.
1: There's only so much that I can indulge in my grief,
0: mm. and I
1: think that was a really important process to go through. At the end, I, I do love making art, and I love the making more than I love the exhibiting. Mm. So. Things could be worse. At least I have my place. I can make my stupid videos, that sort of stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, so the process works for you rather than the finished product, although it's nice to have that, I guess, that satisfaction of getting it done.
1: Oh, of course, and, you know, in terms of the professionalisation mm. of art, this was a big break mm. for me, so to, to have that. But, of course, this is in the context of a of an arts industry that's just been eviscerated, mm. so... You know, again, it's good to keep that in in perspective.
0: And talking about the process that you enjoy, now that you're taking that work of art and developing it for online, Mm
2: -hmm. is is
0: there anything new you've discovered, anything that surprised you or inspired you in, in that process? Or you've taken a look at the perspective that you did in terms of making the physical art and thinking, well, I actually didn't consider that but I have now because I've had to bring it into the digital realm, into online.
1: That is um, such a great question. Thank you for, <laughs> you know, yeah, but but also um, very much so, but I, I don't think that I had consciously thought about it. You mm. know, the temporality of the online space is so different to um, the temporality of moving through the gallery. And of course, you know, you get uh, I guess clues with different artworks about how long to spend um, with each of them. And of course, you have a sort of agency there. But architecture and the works dictate that online it's a completely kind of different temporality and things are popping up and shifting and moving and you know I'm very very influenced by the structure and logic of an app called TikTok do you know TikTok?
0: yes yes the video um the short video app yep
1: oh cool um so yeah yeah TikTok was was actually sort of um something that influenced parts of of the work particularly around um thinking through ideas of Of the voice. Um, So that has certainly come through in the methods with which um, I have been approaching the work that I'm making now.
0: I think the other thing to consider is that when someone as a visitor, as a guest to a gallery or a space, their their focus is very sharp. Mm. Uh, There's very little distraction. However, when you take the artwork online, then the the individual the guest the visitor to your online space is easily distracted mm-hmm. by something coming in on their phone by something popping up on their screen so it can be a lot harder to convey whatever message that you're you're trying to communicate because there are distractions that you have absolutely no control over whereas when you're in a gallery you have the opportunity to control those uh, external influences that someone may be um may be subjected to
1: look yes and no i think um 100% absolutely you know it's an extremely um kind of competitive um mm. attention economy online but you know i kind of make niche work it's not you know it's the quality not the quantity of Mm. of the audience for me you know i do make tiktoks and they're incredibly niche um but the audience that enjoys them enjoys them very much so uh that kind of balances out and i think you know, it would be nice to have this kind of fantasy of purity between, you know, the cyberspace and the meat space, you know, that everybody sort of dreamed about back in the 90s. Yeah. Um, but they've been fluid for a very long time. As much as, you know, it's the, the gallery remains a cathedral and a sacred space and, of course, um, your attention is centred on the work. Mm. You know, everybody has their phone in their pocket all the time and it's not unusual. You know, I I, I work in a gallery as, as my day job um, and people spend a lot of time on their phones in the gallery, not only, um, you know, to, to sort of get that uh, external kind of stimulation that needs to be not self-initiated, but certainly self-maintained to spend a long time considering an artwork. It's, you know, you can get a, a quick kind of hit by whipping out your phone, but also mm-hmm. to sort of mediate between you and the artwork. You know, you can very quickly render your experience in the gallery into a form of social capital um, by Posting a picture of you in front of an artwork or a mirror, and then um, you know sharing that on Instagram, um, yeah. which I think you know is great. Share your joy, you know, but it but it is also certainly performing a a, a kind of classed idea of cultural capital, which yeah. I think um, I I do it too. Like I use all of these apps. This is the thing that why I'm sort of not I guess a kind of political purist. I'm more. Mm-hmm inquisitive and I don't really have the solutions. It's certainly not an option to to opt out now under COVID, but it wasn't before.
0: So your work at Carriageworks, it is available through Carriageworks Journal, which includes some of your diaries, curator conversations, mm-hmm. video content, exhibition imagery as well is all in there. There's a link to it in the description at insidethegallery.com.au, the podcast website. And Giselle, I thank you so much for your insights with us on the podcast today.
1: Thank you, Tim. You enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for having me.
0: Giselle Stanborough, there, whose synopticonic carriage works can be experienced via the Carriage Works Journal, and you can access it by heading to carriageworks.com.au. But as you'd expect, there is a link to it in this edition's description at www.insidethegallery.com.au. Eight years of research, cross referencing, studying, detective work, and total preoccupation has finally led to the publishing of Kathy Sutherland's comprehensive and exceptionally detailed seven-volume set cataloguing the work of Brett Whiteley. It is truly exceptional, not just historically, but a worthy tribute to the art and the artist. Weighing 25 kilograms and totaling 3,000 pages, the catalogue is unprecedented and confirms Brett Whiteley's enduring significance as a visionary force of Australian art. Kathy is on the line. Thanks for joining us on the podcast.
3: You're very welcome.
0: <laughs> Eight years working on this project. I mean, are you now ultimately satisfied with the result?
3: Well, the catalogue raisonné is a, a difficult creature because it never really comes to an end. Every time there's an exhibition or an auction or a sale, yeah. um, it's likely that new information comes to light, mm. or you know that one can extend the text to include that the details of that exhibition or that sale. So it's really hard to say this is now closed, Mm. but I had to do it. It was an absolutely um, overwhelming amount of work putting this all together. So uh, I've been as careful as I possibly can Mm. be, so (laughs) I've done my best.
0: Yeah. And tell me, how did you first connect with this project? How did it come your way?
3: It came my way, sort of. I was I was full time uh, working within the arts industry. Mm-hmm. I was uh, with Christie's for many years as mm-hmm. head of paintings for Christie's, and I got a little bit tired of buying and commerciality. So I wanted to take myself back to study. So I went to university. Went to Melbourne University, and I started a a, a master's degree in art curatorship.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I wanted to write a thesis. At that stage, I was very interested in art, Australian artists as expats, and particularly in London. And I'd been stomping around London in the late 60s, 70s. So I was particularly interested in the experience of Australian artists. And then I looked at who might I research further, and Boyd, sort of Don mm. Blackman, John Nolan, bit earlier, but done. Whiteley, not, you know, big gap there. Mm. There was very little known about his, his overseas experience. Everybody was sort of concentrating on his blue and gold beach scenes yeah. and the Australian subject matter, but not much known. So I thought, I'm going to do Whiteley. And then I didn't realize that most of, uh, or the most significant uh, perhaps series that he created during the London period was the Christie series. Yeah. Which is a series based on the necrophiliac murderer John Christie, right? And and the subject matter was very topical at the time that that um, Whiteley was was considering it as a subject, not because he lived round the corner from where the the murders had taken place, uh-huh. and they'd taken place a decade before, but they'd convicted the wrong man and hung the wrong man. Oh. So there was a considerable discussion at the time in the, in the early 60s as to the rights and wrongs of capital punishment. Mm-hmm. So it was a very topical subject. Mm. So that's where it all started. And I finished uh, my studies at the end of 67, which was when he left England and went to America. So that was the end of my thesis. And then I reworked it and, and added more, and it became the first publication called Essential Line. Right. And that was published by Macmillan in 2010. So it came to a full stop. Okay, done my job. <laughs> yes. Two years later, I'm thinking, oh, I think somebody needs to do the catalogue raisonne on the rest of his work, their life's work. Mm. And I'm the obvious Turkey to do Mm. it. I'm the one who, you can't understand an artist's life's work unless you understand the nuts and bolts of his early work.
0: In terms of what you were saying earlier, did you have to curate it to the extent of leaving anything out of these volumes?
3: I had to make a conscious decision about how I was going to structure it. Mm -hmm. So I wrote two essays, um, one on the nude and one on landscape. And then the rest was the catalogue raisonné, uh, or an explanation of terms to begin with. But uh, the catalogue raisonné is the nuts and bolts of the project. And I set it out in a way that it worked in tandem with existing biographies. I felt that uh, the public knew enough about the celebrity status of the artist uh-huh. and the notoriety, you know, his lifestyle with the drug taking. Yeah. So I've I've used that as a sort of a backdrop. I've, every entry will have a section called literature, where if there's a relevant anecdote in one of the existing biographies, I've included a page reference, right. so that you can look it up. So that can extend the story. Right. At the same time, um, quite often I was able to. Learn anecdotal stories about a work through Wendy Whiteley with her memory of the events mm. um, and through friends and contemporaries. So sometimes when I can, I add a note if it's additional information. Mm. Mm. The one thing I left out I did a very, very exhaustive study of Whiteley's um, stamps, his chops, and his monograms, right. and they're very significant. Um, because they change through the years and you can, it does help dating a work if you know the sequence of his use of monograms and, and chops and stamps. So I thought that information was probably something that I should keep as a tool for research when people come to me wanting me to sort of give them information about a particular work, mm. but also to protect it from any of the bad guys out there. <laughs> <Okay.
0: Yeah. laughs> you, you mentioned Wendy just
3: mm-hmm.
0: then. Was was there input in this project from the estate?
3: Yes, yes. I mean, the estate holds ooh, more than 1,500 works. Most of them from the estate would be drawings and sketches, but they're really sort of vital pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. And uh, the estate was fantastic. Brett Whiteley studio, which is administered by the Art Gallery of New South Wales, they were incredibly supportive. I mean, they... Clearly, only a, a crazy person like myself would take on a task like this. Of course. As, as a voluntary job. <laughs> yes. for, uh, so <laughs> I can't imagine why they wouldn't want me to do it. <laughs> but uh, they, were, they were terrific. And the Art Gallery of New South Wales supported me with um, illustrations, a lot of, you know, maybe more than 100 illustrations they would have sent through yeah. to me. Wow, high resolution. Right. So I've been all the all the galleries have been fantastic. All the state and regional galleries, they've all been amazingly supportive. As have the commercial galleries, and Whiteley's dealers, Australian galleries, Stuart Purvis in particular, mm. and in Sydney, Robin Gibson, mm. and in Queensland, Philip Bacon. They've all been so generous with their time and the information they've given me from their early records about who collected and early sales uh, and then on top of that and then it's of course scouring newspapers and magazines and looking for references mm. to mm. works and the auction houses have been very helpful too
0: mm. well it certainly shows in the comprehensive nature of what you've put into the into the volumes but let me go back and just ask you for your opinion regarding Whiteley, and we we know he's important in the history of art in Australia. But what do you think is the most unique quality that that makes him so important?
3: He had a fantastic, amazing visual memory Mm -hmm. and ability to just jot down, because he had this innate facility for drawing, for sketching, and he could just jot down the incident, the moment, and capture it either in pen, charcoal, or pencil. And that whole collection of impressions forms the basis of his oeuvre, whether he developed it into more uh, larger drawings or oil paintings. But the sketches, the -the on-the-spot input, is really the foundation of his work. And I think his uniqueness, his ability to observe the world around him and capture that moment... I think that that's his great, great strength. And at the same time, he's he's creating a social commentary about his life and time. Sure. He, you know, the people who surrounded him, his friends, fellow artists, musicians, you know, widely just adored. He worked with music. Music was incredibly important to him. Hmm. Drinking mates in England or Australia. Yeah. Uh, drug addicts, Um, there's a tremendously colourful who's who of characters that go right through the catalogue. So you learn a lot about his environment as well as learning about Whiteley the man.
0: Yeah, and did you discover anything unknown or unusual that that surprised you when you came across it?
3: I think that I was very aware of Whiteley the celebrity and his successes. In prize winning and and of course his reputation, the notoriety of his drug taking. But what really impressed me was, i through letters and looking at his drawings, particularly his drawings, was a vulnerability he expresses and a, a concern for his fellow, a real compassion, mm. a very generous and warm spirit that he expresses in his letters and. The sort of uncertainty about his God, what he considered to be a God-given gift, Mm. um, it belies the confidence that comes from the press reviews and, and all the successes that there's this underflow, undercurrent of vulnerability of caring and concern which I found very touching.
0: Mm. And in terms of the the work that you've turned out in creating this, and it's very comprehensive and very well designed, I, I might add as well, but do you see yourself as a bit of an artist as well in putting this together?
3: <laughs> uh, not <laughs> the overall design. I, I agree it's an artwork in mm. itself. It's a beautiful, almost like a medieval mm. A manuscript yes. you know, being kept in this beautiful box. Well, that really is Morrie Schwartz's conception, right. working in tandem with the designer, John Warwick, a libretto. My part was really with the illustrations saying which works should go together. That was my creative input. Okay. So if there was a drawing from a sketchbook of pigeons, you know, bread feeding the pigeons. I knew that that should be shown opposite the the oil painting. Sure, and that was probably, you know, that's something nobody else could have known because I knew I would love to have done it. Uh, set up the illustrations according to themes, but I couldn't do that because it had to run chronologically, year by year, and sometimes that's quite difficult because years blend into each other in terms of his output Mm. Um, paintings of animals in 1978 and 79 it's very hard to draw a line and say this is the end of 78 Mm. and the same when he was preparing for the uh, vincent show um 82 and 83 i found that very difficult so when i was assembling the images occasionally i'd have to take something from 82 and put it in 83 just to make sense yeah. of a drawing relating to a painting. Yeah. So that, that was my creative input, that part.
0: <laughs> now, there's only a 1,000 of these uh, volumes being produced and, and they are very labour-intensive to create mm-hmm. and a collector's item too. Yes. But do you think considering the thousands of hours that have been put into this, not only by you but by your, your colleagues, is that enough is 1,000 enough?
3: We won't know for a while, but <laughs> I think one of the problems is storing these you know, seven volumes in, in a mm. box is quite a task for shipping and, and storage. Sure, uh, sure. And I suppose if the 1,000 copies go and the demand is there, then… Uh, uh, Black Ink and Maurice Schwartz will probably think about doing a rerun. but
0: uh. After eight years of this, is this a defining work for your life? Is there anything else to come?
3: It's it's certainly the defining work, and I won't mm. be able to close shop. I'll have to keep – I'll be looking. and I, I mean, for instance, I had to close. I had to say, that's it, no more. Yeah. Uh, but I know there's a drawing in Los Angeles. I've seen a, uh, an iPhone snap of it. Yeah. Um, it should go into an addendum, but at the time of closing the catalogue, I didn't have enough information to include it. Yeah. So throughout the catalogue, I've left gaps, and those gaps are for what will because because it was a. But for many reasons but he was generous but he was also uh, you know taking drugs so occasionally he would sell things just quickly uh, they might not have been catalogued for an exhibition they're just quickly sold and mm. I was also saying to somebody the other day you know when he went into uh, rehab places he'd be quite he, he did he gave away drawings to people that he you know sketching while he was in hospital and just giving them away. There's no way I will have found every drawing. Yeah. Yeah, no. So I had to leave the gaps. And that works quite well. And it worked quite well, as I it was reported in a newspaper article yeah. recently. Wendy amazingly found 197 drawings. Wow. After I'd finished cataloging, <laughs> after I'd finished numbering the entire catalog, <laughs> she found 190. I nearly, I mean, I absolutely choked with shock. (laughs) Because they all had to be identified, dated, and then slotted in Mm. to the right spot. And some of them were quite important. Mm.
0: And and given the intensity of the work daily for you over the past eight years, Mm. how has your whole mental disposition changed? After you closed the catalogue off, after you'd finished the work, it's been published. Now you Mm. wake up in the morning. What happens now? How, How has your day changed?
3: I think my nights have changed a lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've I've had to carry the imagery of the entire catalogue in my head mm. all this time. Mm. You have to know all the time the page sequence, where every the e- each category, because the whole every year is divided into themes and categories. I couldn't afford for a minute to forget any of the detail of the catalogue. Yeah. So. My sleeping patterns have been horrendous, and I have (laughs) had, for years, I have had terrible nightmares. I wake up in an absolute panic, thinking, I've forgotten this, I've left this out, and so I suppose the big difference will be that um, it's gone, I can't do anything about it now, I can relax a little bit.
0: Yeah. So you are relieved, or are you empty, or are you regretful? I'm
3: not empty. No. Um, I think I'm relieved. I think it's uh, a huge relief that that, I, that it's on the printing press now. Yeah. Um, it's it's gone. I can't be allowed to fiddle with it anymore the this stage. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, look, Kathy, it's a it's a tremendous achievement. I have to admit, and Thank such you a t- pleasure <laughs> to hear you talk about it, and very much looking forward to at, at some point being able to pour over all the volumes and see the extent of your work and and to see this catalogue of Whiteley's work. It'll just be amazing to do so. And thank you so much for your time on the podcast.
3: Great pleasure, Tim. Thank you.
0: (laughs) That's Cathy Sutherland talking about her eight-year project cataloguing Brett Whiteley's work, a never-ending project really, as she said, and the one-off print release is limited to 1,000 copies with each individual set foiled with a unique number in the series. Head to the Schwartz City website to take a look at schwartzcitybooks.com. Okay, finally, the Ballarat International Photo Biennale has partnered with the Format International Photography Festival and the Gallery of Photography Ireland to launch Mass Isolation Australia, a visual record of the COVID-19 crisis on Instagram. Inspired by the 1937 Mass Observation Project, which specialised in documenting everyday life in Britain and continues to this day, Mass Isolation Australia invites Australians to share their photographs and experience to build an online visual archive of this extraordinary moment in our history. Amelia Saywood is a curator on the project. She joins us on the phone. Thanks for your time, Amelia.
2: No problem. Thanks for having us, Tim.
0: That's all right. Now, how about how this whole project evolved? Can you give us a bit of an
2: idea? Um, so basically, the project really evolved the Format Festival in the UK, a big photography festival over in England. Uh, they started this uh, a mass isolation account uh, in conjunction with the Gallery of Photography in Ireland, and it looked like a great project. So basically, we got involved with them and decided to create an Australian version. So yeah, we could Kind of document the Australian um, impact of coronavirus in Australia and create a digital um, visual archive for that. So we're really pleased to partnership with them and create the Australian version of this project.
0: How can people get involved in this?
2: Uh, So they can get involved on the Instagram account. Uh, It's mass isolation AUS for Australia. Uh, They can tag us in their photos or they can use the hashtag mass isolation Oz. Um, and we'll see them through there. So we're really keen for people to, uh, yeah, share all their photos with us, um, whatever they'd like to tag us in, whether they're a professional photographer or, you know, they're more of a, I guess, someone with their iPhone just documenting things around the house. That's absolutely fine. We want everyone to participate. It's completely free. But yeah, it's based off the Instagram platform.
0: This is a significant time in our history. How do you think Photographs are capturing the entirety of this impact in terms of emotion, really beyond just
2: observation. I mean, I think photographs, they've always been used, you know, as a good source of documentation, but also it's that crossover of documenting, but as an art form, they do have the ability to evoke emotion, to, you know, allow people to, I guess, document more their inner feelings as well. And I think it's important Like at the moment, a lot of people are, you know, in their homes. They're not going out as much. This is a very much a global issue. But at the same time, Mm. people are kind of in private spheres quite a bit. So photography and particularly being able to share it, you know, digitally gives people kind of a visual way of communicating with others and of sharing their images with the wider world as well.
0: I, I think in terms of mobile phone ownership, Pretty much everyone has a camera built into their mobile phone. I'm not aware of any actual phone that has no camera built in. In terms of curating these images, what, what are you looking for?
2: We don't want to dictate anything in particular that we are looking for. We just want a range of whatever the public want to share with us. So we're getting some who are clearly professional photographers who are using it as a chance to document you know, their perceptions, but then we're getting people who are very much don't have a background in photography and are just taking photos of things at home, their family, uh, their household, that kind of thing. And we really do want everyone's day-to-day experiences.
0: I wonder if there's any kind of social trends that you're seeing here, some themes like loneliness, abandonment, Domestic violence, we've talked about quite a bit actually generally in the community during this isolation period or inner reflections. Are you seeing any sort of trend in the pictures that you're receiving?
2: Yeah, we have. We haven't seen anything in particular domestic violence related. Um, Some of the themes we are seeing, I think early on we saw quite a few streetscape kind of images, um, photographs that were very much taken out uh, in like what would usually be very busy public areas and there was a clear kind of sense of, I guess, shock really or surprised at what mm. those kind of scenes looked like at the moment. I think perhaps more later on, like more, that was a few weeks ago that more we're getting to a point where we're seeing posts that are of, I guess, more inner reflection or mm. um, a sense of loneliness, but also a sense of family and of friends that people are really coming together as a community, but also that sense of loneliness, a lot of images of kind of people looking in through windows, through doors, um, taken from the road, you know, people's driveways, that kind of thing. So there are definitely themes, um, loneliness, reflection, and I guess just the awe of what the city is looking like at the moment.
0: Yeah. We're living in a period now of heightened anxieties uh, among some members of the community. Are there any images that you've received that have been particularly moving for you?
2: Definitely. There's been a few. There was one image that I found particularly moving. Uh, Someone had taken it of their elderly parent sitting alone on a bed kind of with the curtains drawn and a lot of you know mood lighting it was a darkened room and I guess it is thinking of that of the older members of our community who may be alone or not being able to you know have as many visits the experience of this is hard enough for everyone but for people in our our community who are you know already more vulnerable then it is especially difficult so images like that can be particularly moving for us.
0: Yeah, there's certainly the extent of isolation that members of the community feel anyway, and now it's been amplified to a large extent because of the fact that there's pretty much no movement around the community.
2: Definitely, and I think perhaps it's also making some of us realize how isolated certain members usually are, how, you know, mm. we're feeling that now and that's what some people their reality is a lot of the time. So I think, I mean, I'm hoping that perhaps this will also lead to perhaps greater compassion amongst the general public for people who are feeling uh, in isolated situations.
0: Yeah, I think in general, there'll be less taken for granted going forward media after we come through all of this. But uh, at some point, you actually intend to hold a real world exhibition of some of the photos you're receiving.
2: Yes, we do. So there are It's a little bit undecided at the moment. We're definitely planning on having a project and an exhibition based around this project uh, next year. So the main uh, Ballarat Biennale is on in August next year. So we Mm -hmm. will hold an event that is the continuation of this then. We're not sure if it'll be a sort of physical exhibition or perhaps given the format of the original uh, project online, that's kind of, that will be confirmed a little bit later. But sure. if people want to keep an eye on the you know, Facebook pages, Instagram and the website, then there definitely will be an exhibition of some form next year related so they can hear more about it then.
0: It's quite interesting that you've actually been able to generate an obvious evolution due to the situation that we're in. You've actually been able to extend what your photo biennale would originally try to achieve, and now you have this vehicle which is born out of an unfortunate circumstance to create a whole different perspective and a whole different motivation in terms of what people can do to participate in what you guys are doing.
2: Yes, definitely, and I think it gives... Also, people who perhaps wouldn't usually uh, get the chance to participate or to mm. engage with the festival, it gives a whole new way, a whole new audience of people who will engage with it and hopefully will continue to do so. But yeah, we're just very keen to see it. We're enjoying seeing everyone's submissions and are very keen for people to keep, keep sending through their photos.
0: Yeah, excellent, Amelia. Well, look, well done on putting this all together. I hope it continues to go well, albeit due to difficult circumstances, but congratulations on getting it up.
2: Thank you so much, Tim.
0: That's Amelia Sayward talking about Ballarat International Photo Biennale's Mass Isolation Australia Instagram project. And you can get more details by visiting ballaratphoto.org. That's photo spelt F-O-T-O. Okay, so ballaratphoto.org. And that is the podcast for this edition, a bumper episode, no doubt. But if you need any more info or want to click on a few links about what we've covered in this podcast, You'll find all the details at www.insidethegallery.com.au. And there's also links to our Facebook and Instagram pages, so please like and share so you never miss an upcoming episode. Thanks, too, for the ongoing support from Pixel Perfect Pro Lab for all your professional print and photographic needs. I'm Tim Stackpole reminding you to wash your hands, keep well, and keep supporting the arts as best you can at this time. Bye-bye for now.